Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 392. How are you all doing? I hope you're well. Thank you to everyone who's been sending loads of love for the recent episodes. The the Laura Dockrell one is just getting so, so much love, as is Amanda Abbotton and Juliet Stevenson. So, um, yeah, thank you all for that. This week's guest, I was really excited about this one because it's, it's, it's Annie McManus, known to many as Annie Mac. And it's really weird. Our paths have never crossed. And I mentioned that every now and then on a podcast with nerves, but it's always seemed odd to me that mine and Annie's paths have never really crossed, considering the timing and trajectory of our careers and our mutual friends. I mean, people we talk about in this podcast who are previous guests on the podcast, if you want to go back and listen, Zane Lowe was one of the first guests, um, Hugh Stevens, Fern Cotton, John Kennedy, Huey Morgan. We talk about Roots Maneuver. Did we mention Mike Skinner? We we talk about a lot of of wonderful people who have all been previous guests and all often quite early because they're people I've just had a lot of interaction with over my career. So yeah, always seemed weird that we hadn't really crossed paths and then this chat happened and it made me kind of annoyed our paths haven't crossed because I loved having a, ch- a chat with Annie. She was fantastic. Um, if you enjoy this chat and want to hear more of Annie chatting, I highly recommend her podcast Changes w- with Annie Mack and also her, her Times best-selling novel, Mother Mother. Both things that we talk about towards the end of the podcast, but for the bulk of it, we just have a good old chat and catch up about her whole career, essentially, as I've been very aware of it, kind of on the outside and, and watching enthusiastically. So yeah, it was great to have this chat. If you want to support the podcast, you can head to speechdevelopmentrecords.com. That's my record label, which we also talk about in this podcast. Um, and you can get CDs, DVDs, v- vinyl, and all sorts of merch, sunglasses, umbrellas, v- vests, hoodies, all the things you need for a confusing British summer. Um, but if you'd rather just chip in less than two quid a month, head over to patreon.com slash pip. Yeah, the minimum is like $1.50 a month or something. You can obviously the ch- chip in more. But um, if you enjoy the podcasts and you're enjoying them f- f- for free week after week and feel you want to contribute and say thanks to me, to the to Buddy Peace and anyone behind the scenes, then that's a perfect a way to do it. The reason I've got the, I kept that subscription so low was so that people can just subscribe and forget about it. Like you're not going to heavily notice a, a, a dollar fifty a month coming out. And if you, if you would, or if you do, then don't, don't come over and subscribe. It's not, it's not that important, <laughs> you know, but yeah, it's an option. Anyway, let's get on with the podcast. This is the Distraction Pieces podcast episode 392 with Annie McManus. Right, I'll begin if that's okay with you. Yeah, please. Right, I'm here today with... Oh, 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 what are we going with today, Annie? Because I've known <laughs> and, and loved you for many years as, as Annie Mac, but you're you're more often going under Annie McManus at the moment. So what's your preferred nom de plume? That's, you know what? No one's actually asked me that in terms of just like having a conversation. 
I think Annie McManus, because that, that's my full name. That is, yeah. that is you know, what, what my uh, family would call me, my friends would call me. So let's go with that. Yeah, that, that, that's perfect then. So how have you been in this, in this weird year? Are you, are you okay? Are you well? Yeah, I am. I'm well, thank you. I feel uh, like uh, a lot has changed um, and that is something that has happened to me and also stuff that I have instigated myself and my general feeling is that I'm, I, I, I've, I've got through and I feel good and I feel very grateful for that. I have a kind of overwhelming feeling of just gratefulness um, yeah. and gratitude helped and bolstered recently by going back to Ireland for the first time in nearly a year, seeing my family, seeing everyone well and healthy. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I feel, I just feel a kind of overwhelming sense of relief and gratitude that I and my loved ones are all okay, I guess. And we're all through it. It's such a strange difference being in a different country to loved ones in a time like, like, like this. I, I found it weird. I was, yeah. I was filming recently in Canada and it was so weird because if I'd been in the UK, I wouldn't have been able to see them anyway. Um, there was obviously all the lockdowns and so on and so forth. But right. being in another country and not having that option just made me so nervous about everyone and everything. And again, similarly, like having l looked on and seen your s schedule over the years, it's not <laughs> like you would have been always b back and forth fr from Ireland. I'm sure there's periods where you didn't go for however long, but yeah. not having the option really changes something internally right in the in your concern and connection 100% that's that's the key there it's just not having the option having having the lack of choice and yeah like i have had periods of not going back to ireland but they've never actually been that long yeah. and when they have been long my family have come to me so i guess as you know we we've always seen each other quite regularly the bit that I found very hard was going home for Christmas, which is something that I've just always done. Yeah. And I think it, you speak to anyone in the Irish uh, diaspora and they will say that going home for Christmas is, you know, it's 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 a concrete part of your Irishness. You know, it's yeah. kind of like it, it's 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 the part of of you that you need to like plug in and recharge, you know, remember who you are, where you came from and kind of come back feeling stronger in your Irishness and in your identity. You yeah. know, when you live away from home, from anywhere your sense of identity and your kind of closeness to that place becomes much stronger because of your distance from it. You know, yeah, it becomes much more important to you and significant uh, when you're Irish abroad. Um, you kind of cling on to that a lot more. So when you can't go back, yeah, it was, it was, it was tough. And it was also just the kind of residual worry of my parents who are getting older, They're both, you know, well into their seventies. My mom's just turned 79. So it's kind of like, are they okay? Are they going to, kill each other you know they're in the house all day on their own like oh my yeah. god um but yeah so you know I'm just yeah as I said just just feeling happy that I was able to go back and and everyone's good it's an interesting one I've not thought about because Christmas is the most family of holidays the most food and drink of holidays and the most religious of holidays and they're three things that are tied to Ireland so strongly <laughs> and so heavily so of course that must be one where it's essential that you go back and, and, and you're all together in one big place and cousins yeah. and aunts and uncles and all that kind of thing. It's, yeah, yeah. it must have been yeah. strange. 100%. And it also means a lot to me as a parent for my kids to remember that they have Irish in their family. I'm always yeah. like, remember you're half Irish, remember that. And they that, they wind me up by saying, oh, we're English. And it's like, yeah. yes, you are English, but you've also got like, you know, this Irish heritage is so important. 
Um, so like them going back there is just, you know, again, for me, it means so much to see them with their Irish family and, and kind of understanding Ireland more every time they go back. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I was watching the um, Shane McGowan documentary recently. Ah, uh, yeah, and, I've seen it. And he was someone who, he lived largely in London. It, it wasn't mm. touched upon that much and would go home for holidays. And mm-hmm. again, you think of him as one of the most iconically Irish people there is. And it's because of that his, that tradition of you go home and, as you say, you're reminded of your Irishness. Mm. Potentially, if you were there the whole time, you might not be reminded of it as much, if that makes sense. But going away 100%. and coming back repeatedly makes you go, oh, my God, I need to be as Irish as I can because I'm away and I feel it's, you know, it's slipping away. A hundred percent. I really relate to that and to his kind of fierce conviction in, in yeah. his Irishness and his family's Irishness. I really do relate to that. And I was actually brought up on Shea McGowan and the Pogues. I have two big brothers who were obsessed. My big, big brother was obsessed with the Pogues. One of the first songs I learned how to play was A Man You Don't Meet Every Day from Rum yeah. Sodomy and the Lash that caught you weird. And so I, I just, they're part of my upbringing. And also like music is sometimes like when you're away from home and you listen to a song like that, like A Pair of Brown Eyes or Dirty Old Town, like a Pogue song that you haven't heard in so long. It's just, I mean, we know the power of music, but like when you hear a song like that, it's quite like, it's quite visceral, you know, a yeah. reaction to that and how much it can remind you of home. And there's certain albums like um, Van Morrison's Astral Weeks that, yeah. it, you know, I sometimes just can't listen to. It's too, it's too much. It's just too, it's, it stirs too much in you to, to I, be able to just kind of go about your day, you know, and, and like do do normal things. I can completely relate. I like, I like watching that Pogues documentary. I've got no Irish in me whatsoever, but Ireland was always our, our second home because of touring. We had such a good following there right. that we'd always end every tour in Ireland because yeah. if you're touring Europe, you never know how it's, it's, it's going to go. You could be playing to 2,000 people one night and 15 people the next. Like We literally had that. Our, yeah. We ended our UK dates in, at, at Coco and started our European tour in, in, in Italy once, and we literally had two and a half thousand and then 15 but we'd end every tour in Ireland because we knew it'd be the loudest and we had a good good following there because we didn't only play Dublin we'd tour about right, and we'd yeah, go clever and people yeah. would love that it was it was a love thing but that small personal relationship mm. with Ireland meant watching some of those Pogues performance and Shane McGowan performances it got me so I can only imagine how it must be mm. for people who've who've grown up in that so I guess what what was it like growing up in Ireland? You grew up in Dublin, right? Yeah, and, yeah. I grew and, up in Dublin. Ireland's always had a great music scene, but I'd imagine around the time you were growing up is when it started to get more of a nightlife and club scene. Um, from from touring again, I'd seen. Um, I can't think of. I'm going blank on every name now, but a lot of the pubs started to have more club nights going mm. later mm. there were obviously a lot of clubs p- popping up here and there as well so yeah what was your introduction into music and and all of that so i think like the best thing about having siblings is that you're kind of very porous to their tastes and you take it all in and soak it all in my my introduction to music just came obviously just from having it around the house and having my family play it all the time um, my biggest brother was really into rock, the Smiths, the Cure, the Pogues, Thin Lizzy, hugely. There's a Phil Linnett documentary on the way that I'm very excited about too. Amazing. And trad music. And he played it all. 
So he played the guitar, the banjo. He played this beautiful instrument called the bazooki, which is a cross between a guitar and a banjo. Okay. He played the mandolin, played the baron. Then my, my sister, she was kind of the, the Lisa Simpson of the family. She played the saxophone in her bedroom most of the time. Um, she renounced trad music. She wasn't in it. And my brother, then he was, he was into rock music as well. And he played concertina, piano, guitar. So we all just, we all, it was just there. We just all played music. I feel like the, the saxophone is such a great choice for the most untrad music <laughs> instrument because the Pogues had made electric stuff still applicable to trad. Yeah. But the saxophone... No way. That's not going anywhere like, near. Like she listened to Erasure. She listened <laughs> yeah. to like the most, the most kind of synthesized, like yeah. anti anti trad, anti rootsy music that she could find. She was the one that actually introduced me to pirate radio, like techno. Like yeah. she 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 was the kind of way in there for me in terms of Love being it. aware of it. Yeah. So and I just remember in school, like again, I was so lucky in school. All of our friends were just mad into music. They used to be my friend Derek made this tape called a funk tape, and it was all like Maceo and the Max and like you know just loads of like Sly and Family Stone, excellent old seventies uh, uh, funk music. And it got re re recorded and re recorded and just passed around the whole year. Um, and it was this legendary thing. And it, that was my introductions to kind of old old black music, I guess. And then when I was kind of in my teens, I started really, you know, finding music myself. And um, that was when it got really exciting. I think a pivotal moment for me was around when I was 15, 16, discovering left field leftism, which was yeah. like like amazing techno music and also Massive Attack Blue Lines. Yeah. Opened so many doors in my head for just understanding, you know, again, more black music. So like dub and reggae and rap music, all kind of interlaced with each other on this like incredible album. And uh, that, that just, yeah, that just kind of really made me curious for more. But um, all that time in terms of going out, I was just going to pubs. It was just yeah. big drinking culture. And it yeah. wasn't until I was in my final year of school that I was allowed to go clubbing for the first time. My parents were quite strict. Um, but in my, you know, when I was kind of 17, I was allowed to go into town to go to this club called the Temple of Sound, which was quite a legendary club. And um, that changed my life. It's it's the yeah. absolute clubbing cliche of like yeah. walking in one person, walking out the next. <laughs> OK, life has changed forever. That's me. I'm done. Yeah. I'm going clubbing as as much as I can for the rest of, you know, at that point felt like, I've done, you know, that's all I want to do. I moved away to Queen's University in Belfast and, and I really got stuck in up there in a big way. I, I, I love it. I always remember I took years to get into anything dance based. And it's interesting because Massive Attack and Left Field are those ones that would draw in indie kids and right. metal kids kind of yeah, like, like John Lydon um, on their music. Yeah, like yeah. Th there's all these links, isn't there? And kind of like Cypress Hill and J J Jurassic five would be the first rap things that indie kids. Would yeah, get yeah, into. yeah. Um, but, but I remember just thinking I'd never get into dance music. Cause I, I remember doing drugs in a field or, or, or watching the chemical brothers and not, and not feeling it. I think, right. If, if I don't get into dance now, I'm never going to. But then I remember... Hang on, which bit weren't you feeling? The drugs? Were they not working? Or was the music the, the drugs not good enough? The working, but I still wasn't connecting with the music. And I thought, the music. I thought okay. that was the pinnacle of it. But then I did drugs in a sweaty rave in Birmingham mm -hmm. and I got it. And I realised it, it was that that's the real home. Like it's, it, And again, it was that cliche experience of over the night, just the emotion of the music and the people and, yeah. and all of that. Whereas previously, I loved live bands. I loved w w watching 
the right. music appear and, and disappear as quickly. Whereas with a rave, I didn't get it. It was just a constant thing, but yeah. I got it in the end. And yeah, it can be a life a changing thing, right? So, mm. so how how was it to? What drew you to start being involved in it, to start DJing, to start being part of this world? I started record collecting when I went to university. I started just going to charity shops and going down to HMV and spending any money that I had buying records and then just trying to find old records too. So it's just that kind of, that thing that happens when you start kind of, when you're on the periphery of of, of music and you have a few ins, like we discussed, and, and just that dot joining you know how it's yeah. like you, one thing's linked to the next. It's linked to the next. It might be a producer. It might be a record label. It might be the bass player on a song, and you know, and and you find that you're kind of moving from artist to artist, label to label, and it becomes this really thrilling kind of infinite journey of discovery, where you're like, and and each bit feels more exciting and 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 more kind of rewarding. Um, and I started doing that along the same time as, as working in this club where I was seeing all these DJs come in week in, week out. And these were, this was like Northern Ireland's most kind of prestigious, credible club when it came to electronic music. And people from all over the world came, you know, really legendary people. I look back now and I'm like, I'm so lucky that that yeah. was my education. Yeah. Uh, people like Lauren Garnier from France and Green Velvet from Chicago. And these just legendary names in dance music would come. And Andrew Weatherall, Andrew Weatherall was Andrew a resident. Yeah. Uh, what was the club? Uh, it was Shine. The club was Shine. called Shine. Um, and, and, and Northern Ireland, a bit similar to Scotland, they really like warm to and gravitate towards tougher music. So yeah. it, techno is really big there. Yeah. And um, I mean, you could have a whole other podcast about why that is. I'm fascinated in yeah. that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but but yeah, so I, I kind of learned a lot about about that type of music and those type of DJs and, and how you move a crowd and, and and just being able to sit at the edge of the club, which was my job because I was kind of guarding the door of the green room yeah. and just watch a crowd and watch how the music moves them and, and, and how to kind of create this journey with a crowd and how to create tension and suspense and then relief and reward and all the ways that you know a dj you know is skilled at kind of having a hold on the crowd all of that was just it was the best education i could have ever got and then i kind of hung around i've always been a bit of a tomboy i've always had been really comfortable and being friends with boys from when i was a kid so i had a whole group i lived with a load of girls and i had a whole group of guys that were my friends and they were my kind of headsy music head friends so you yeah. know we would talk about music and we'd play poker and we'd smoke weed and like listen to rap and all of that and um, one of them sold me his decks in, in my final year of uni mickey wow and um a mixer and a big box of old techno records and that was me and it was it was that was the start of of me being dj and and it was just pure passion and at that point i i mean i can't ever remember thinking i want to be up there like those djs you know what i mean it wasn't like i had this burning you know ambition to to kind of see djing as a career i don't really think i saw it as that then it was just a hobby it was just something i was mad into and just wanted yeah. to do all the time um so that, that's that's what i did it's 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 that addiction to making it work and finding those yeah. l- links and, and and transitions some of my favorite dj sets ever have been in my studio out the back of my house with no one there <laughs> where i've just had a saturday night particularly during the pandemic every now and then i've just gone in there on my own and had a rave up and thought man that's that's in my top five sets of all time, and, <laughs> do, and no do you one record was there. Them? 
No, no, I never do. I never record them. It's just that 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 beauty of wow. It just flowed and yeah, and you found that. Do you, do you think anything has changed since the dawn of of the internet? Like when it comes to music, because when you were talking earlier about crate digging and finding those tracks. It's mm. a weird thing. There is that excitement of feeling like you've found something that no one else n- knows about, even though you probably haven't. It's probably been yeah. found by a million people, but you have that excitement of it being your discovery. Whereas now, you can find a blog that's got that and every other yeah. track associated to it on, and it feels like part of that m- magic that you get inside you is maybe g- gone now. But mm. I don't know, maybe it's still there in in the, the being able to go down the rabbit hole after making that discovery. But I wonder if that, if that excitement over music and finding things is, is yeah. going to die out somewhat. I, I, you know what? I'm really interested in that. Cause you know, that's all happened in the time that I've been on air. Yeah. When I started out, everything was physical. Everything was very analog. It was like, I would have a big pile of CDs or vinyl. That's a yes pile. That's a no pile. It was all so tangible and, and and easy to organize and easy to get your head around. And then when everything started becoming digitized, it was quite overwhelming, especially in dance music, because dance music of all of the genres was the most accessible to technology, the most easy if yeah. you sit in a room and you can be a bedroom producer to make six tracks and send them to me on an email. So it, it felt like this kind of infinite kind of, you know, overwhelming amount of music to, to kind of be across and to, and, to, and to process. And I found that quite intimidating I remember um, at the start when everything became digitized because I didn't have a way of organizing it I was shit on my laptop <laughs> I, I didn't have everything on different hard drives and stuff it was just like ah panic yeah. um, and, and you know I, I'm interested in the idea of how young people consume music now when things are digitized in the way that they are and when they have the entire world's music collection on that like yeah. the concept of new music Right, which is what I do. That's what I deal in on my radio yeah. show. Back then, when I started out, new music was something that you had to seek out, you had to buy, you had to find. Yes, you, your radio show was your tool and your, your your way of discovering that and being you know told about that. But nowadays, it's just there. And it's not just the new music is there, it's that all of music is there. So if you're 15 and you discover Steely Dan, right, that's new to you. So what is new music anymore? Because it's like the entire of old music is there and and, and kind of discoverable. I'm kind of flummoxed by how it. How, it. how it it's, all works now. It's, it's, it's so mad. It's something I think about loads because since I stopped making music, I regularly, anytime I post anything on Instagram or, or Twitter, there's always some people going, are you making any new music? And I'm I'm not, I'm, I'm done now. Yeah, but yeah. my kind of argument to them is I've had f- five albums like only yeah. three of them were particularly big. So yeah. there's probably two, two out there that are new to you. Like They're not new, just t- technically on the date that they were recorded means that they're not new, but they're new to you. So what's the difference there in, uh, in, in new music, in the term, when it's strictly on the date? If, if it's new to your ears, then there's plenty more to discover. Exactly. It's totally true. And, and, you know, it's the idea of why should on my radio show, should we only be playing brand new music when, you know, kids are listening to Taylor Swift next to, you know, an, an old, I don't know, Kanye West record from yeah. 15 years ago. I don't know. It's just, it's so fascinating, the whole concept and the, uh, of new music and the way that people consume it now. But I mean, I, like you, I'm one of those people that came to music through, through having to seek it out. 
and discover yeah. it and hold it in my hands and and look at you know re- read the players on a record and the you know all the credits and all the info and and pull the record out and scratch my records really badly all of this idea of kind of having to having to nurture and look after your music you know mm. like you know having to really value it physically as well as kind of cerebrally i suppose it's it's a whole it's an ancient thing it's an ancient and again, concept the, i can completely relate to the almost disorganizedness of of of, yeah. of a collection because it also means you've had those moments where that physical copy has saved you you're DJing yeah. and you don't know what's coming next like i remember a dj at the club night i ran for 10 years this guy um yeah discotech credits he'd turn up he'd have his memory sticks it was all saved in bpm order all this kind of thing i'd have my big folder of cds and when it flowed it flowed but every now and then you'd get stuck and be like i don't know what i'm playing next and then you just yeah. find one thing that goes yeah it's there it's there it's in front of you with a few seconds to go you found it and it's in so you've had this connection to these these physical bits that have got you out of the jam i've been there looking to onlookers as if i'm calm and in control but i'm sweating i'm panicking because i don't know what's next i've got the room but i don't know what's next I still have my old CD wallets, right? Yeah. As they were. And I can just see myself with my kids going, look at these boys and <laughs> dusting them off, taking out these CDs. Yeah, this is what we used to play. Yeah. I mean, I, I have my CDJs and obviously they still they still accept the ones I have. You can still put a CD in. So yeah. I, I feel good about that. But yeah, I used to love those days of CD wallets. But, you know, and my USB sticks now, listen, I'm not complaining. It's amazing. I can roll up to a gig with my handbag. It's yeah. it's incredible. Yeah. Um, you can, you know, the way that you can store everything via BPM or, or the way that I search when I'm DJing a lot of the time, I don't really store my music via genre. I, I love hearing how people store their music yeah. on their, on their yeah, keys yeah, and yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. But but mine is, all, mine is all via the type of gig I'm playing. So like big commercial right. corporate gig or like yeah, main stage yeah, festival yeah, yeah. or like undergrad. So it's all that kind of thing. And then dates attached to them. So with the, with the music that you'd be playing at that time. So if I'm kind of DJing on the fly, I would search via key. So if I've got something playing in A minor, I will just go and look and imagine that. Just being Amazing. able to search my entire yeah. collection and see what else is in A minor, and then what else is the right BPM. Like technology is fucking amazing when you think yeah. of it in that way, compared yeah. to what we used to have to do. I, I love the idea of that, and I love the idea that there's certain '90s R&B tracks that are on all of the playlists there, all, all in, yeah. in every of the sections, <laughs> from corporate yeah. gigs to sweaty rows. Oh, it's yeah. like there's certain ones that it fits everywhere. Yeah, um, totally. So can I ask about your transition from the raves to to BBC Radio 1? Because there was something you said earlier about even before you were DJ and having your friends who you'd play poker with and talk about music that really informs me of what I know of your style on the radio because it always feels like there's genuine passion there and you're excited right. to talk about this stuff. Do you, do you think that's set you up for, for going from... Because a lot of great DJs... Yeah. can't present obviously it's a completely different right. skill it's so weird that people seem to think oh you're a good dj here have a radio show it's like i can't talk the reason i dj <laughs> is because i can't talk but it feels like you didn't have that so yeah how was that that transition i guess and who were your influences i mean i'm asking a really l- long question here but it just came to mm. mind colin M- 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 murray yeah. coming from northern ireland to 
to to to playing on every radio station that there yeah. is in the world and being such a a shining force for outside for it not being a london centric here's someone right. with a london accent doing a radio show yeah you know when i look back at colin now you, you realize how valuable like at the time i took him for granted but yeah. there's so few people with that accent in the mainstream yeah yeah, yeah so i think my my influence is at the start like in the Republic of Ireland, where I grew up, I didn't have access to BBC Radio. I didn't really have access to radio until I moved to Northern Ireland. And, and, and I was listening to these late night shows. And I remember hearing Marianne Hobbs. That was always, in terms of, in terms of the, the show that she did, I was attracted to it because I never knew what was around the corner. And at yeah. that time, Specialist Radio, which is what it was called, it was all very neatly compartmentalized. So you had the dream team who did UKG. You had Fabian Grooverider who did jungle music. You had Pete who did house. You did Judge Jules who did trance. Everyone had their bit. Yeah. Marianne had a show that did everything. She played jungle next to breakbeat, next to big beat, which was really huge then. Um, so, you know, it was all different types of, of, of music. And, and I really liked the kind of mishmash of it. So she was really inspiring to me in terms of how she put her music together. And also how she presented and then there was obviously John Peel who I just loved how himself he was on the radio yeah. how unapologetically himself like he couldn't be anyone else but and his how own authentic how, comfortable how cantankerous and grumpy yeah. and like all, all of that all of those sides of him were, were just there for, for you to hear yeah and then I remember hearing a show which which really actually had a big influence on me and it was I think it was a very short-lived show but there was a Sunday afternoon show on Radio 1 for a while with Sarah Cox and Emma B together Mm. and that was really interesting because it was very rare and still is unfortunately very rare when you hear two women on the radio together and hearing two friends on the radio again just being allowed to be themselves felt quite revolutionary and just kind of opened I guess a door in my head of 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 me thinking well you know there is a place for me. There could be a place for me on Radio 1 where I could just be me. So so it was it was all around a time kind of in my teen, late teens, kind of early 20s when I was hearing this stuff and I was really, really influenced by them. And then I got a job on moving to London. I mean, my brother was in a band. His manager ran the bar flight um, right. in Camden, this very legendary bar and uh, they also ran this student broadcast network thing, which was basically a student radio station that broadcast in all of the gaps in student radio stations around England. So if you had a student radio station and you only had like five hours of programming a day, the student broadcast network would, would broadcast in all of the other hours. They'd Amazing. fill in the gaps for you. So I got a job there doing the weekend breakfast show and producing the, the hip hop show, um, which was called Circumference. And I also did a, a show which was kind of live. It was called In Session with Annie McManus. And it was like just bands coming over and playing and me recording them. And that was a huge, huge uh, stepping stone for me to be able to go there, produce shows, learn how to work studios properly, present shows, find find out who I could be on air, like practice stuff. That was that was massive for me in London. And um I kind of did that for a good few years until I, mean, I got into Radio 1. That's some amazing people to get in with. I think the Barfly lot are really underrated for their influence right. on independent music, from the Barfly to the Fly Bar to Fly Magazine to the studio yeah. radio stuff. They were doing... Yeah, they Fly weren't Magazine, just going, I forgot about that. Yeah, or they weren't just going, oh, we've got a venue, let's yeah. put some gigs on. They were going, how do we get all of this out there and how do we 
like every promoter knows that you'll book, you'll have a moment where you book this band that are the best thing in the world, but no one's heard of them. And it's mm. the most heartbreaking thing. So, so they're going, right, how can we make people hear about them? Let's yeah. do a magazine. Let's do a radio mm. show. Let's do all of this stuff to really push forward independent music at that point. So, yeah, that must right. have been amazing to be jumping in on all that. And then I got a job at Radio 1, but behind the scenes. And again, yeah. like looking back, I'm so grateful for that. Because I had two years working as a broadcast assistant. So... Um, the person beneath the producer, kind of assisting the producer, writing notes yeah. for the DJ, making tea, editing stuff, just 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 kind of helping make everything work. I worked across three different DJs in that time. So I worked across Steve Lamack, firstly. Yeah. yeah. Then I worked across Colin Murray, who stood in because Radio 1 signed Zane and XFM did not want Zane to go. So they kept him for six months, yeah. kind of wrangling with contracts. And in that time, Colin stepped in. And then Zane came. So all three of those DJs, so uniquely different to each other yeah. in their personalities, in their styles, and being able to work across all of them and see how each of them worked and figure out which bits I, I wanted to kind of, uh, you know, use or kind of, uh, you know, use as a as a kind of influence and which bits I didn't. You know, it's that. It's kind of like just, it was the best, again, the best possible training for me as a radio DJ. And it also just helped me know how a show is supposed to work, how a show is yeah. supposed to be made, what the producer's role is, when a producer is doing their job well or not, and all of that stuff. So it was just the most incredible experience. And I think that really helped me to to know how to do a good radio show when it came to being a DJ. A hundred percent. I mean, you've the three people you've listed there, as you say, completely different in their styles and their shows, but yeah. they were all in those slots. And it's something I wanted to talk to you about. What I kind of knew as that Zane Lowe slot, but became the Annie Max slot as well. I still call it the Zane Lowe slot. <laughs> it's it's such an important slot and it's overlooked because it's the first point in the day where there becomes some real freedom in what you mm. play. So you've got right. that a little bit extra looseness on playlists and on things like that. And Steve had that, Colin had that and Zane had that. They would all be guys who would go, I'm bringing something new here. There's something I need to play. And mm. and you had a bit more f freedom. So was that an exciting thing to become that kind of DJ? And they also all become the targets. I, I mean, you, you mentioned Marianne Hobbs earlier, but as someone who made music that didn't fit into one category, they were the people that we'd, that we'd be looking at and going, well, They'll play anything. Like they could right. play anything, so we can hit them up. Rather than here's yeah. the rock show or here's the hip hop show Got or, or mm. one extra or whatever else. It was your Marianne Hobbs's, your Zane's. I'd mm. throw Hugh Stevens in there as well yeah. in those kind of later slots that you go. You never know, man. If they click with this, they could 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 put it out there. So was that always the kind of DJ that you wanted to be? I guess to give people opportunities to break stuff to find stuff. Yeah, definitely. I think I think I loved the the thrill of being able to find things and play them to people for the first time. But I think for me, it's always been more about the emphasis has been more more about being able to play it to the listener, if you know what I mean. So the idea yeah. of a listener hearing a song for the first time and knowing how that feels and being able to facilitate that for listeners 
is such a buzz for me. Obviously, so is the so is the kind of helping and being able to kind of give bands a lift. But I find with that, and maybe that's because I'm coming from some somewhere that's been there for 17 years, is that if I think too much about that element of yeah. of, of kind of, of of what it means for the artists, it's a bit overwhelming. Yeah. Because for every artist you're helping, there's six artists that you're not. Yeah. And I find that side of it is brutal. And and it's kind of like if you focus too much on the people behind the music, it can be really, uh, really difficult. And yeah. I've always tried to have total honesty and integrity in only playing music that I am really moved by. And sometimes that means not playing musicians that you know, that you respect, that you DJ with, that you know. And and that's yeah. been that's been something I've had to kind of grow a thick skin to over the years. So for me, it's it's always kind of judging the song by the song alone. And then obviously, if you get to, you know, love talking to the artist, love seeing them evolve, love seeing them grow. But I try not to think of the artist in the process of picking the music. Does that make sense? Completely, completely. <laughs> and again, it's so, it's such a weird thing how, how natural it is. Because again, I I came from being that guy who was hoping to get my songs played. And I still remember the yeah. first time John Kennedy played one of our tracks or Rob the Bank or Zayn or, mm. or whomever else. Yet when I had my radio show on XFM, exactly as you said, it was the excitement mm. of playing it to the listener. And I think that comes from, again, it goes back to our youth. When yeah. we're meeting up with mates and going, you've got to hear this song, we're not thinking about the band and thinking, you know, I'm doing a good thing here, I'm spreading their music. Yeah. We're excited because we want someone else to feel what we felt w- yeah. when we heard that. And taking that with you into radio... I think is really important because it keeps mm. the authenticity. Yeah, it keeps that that g- genuineness there that um, is key to to doing it l- long term. I think. Yeah, it keeps you a fan, doesn't it? You're kind of yeah. coming at it from a fan perspective. Yeah, which is which is I think is the best way. I hope anyway to to come at it when you kind of try not to think about agendas or hype or industry talk or you know. There's yeah. always a lot of people when you do my job whispering in your ear, telling you, "Oh, you got to check this out." You got to see, you know. And it's like you have to just kind of you, you have to learn how to have conviction in your own opinion. Yeah, and you also have to learn to push yourself and doubt yourself and 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 not be afraid to be wrong that's another yeah. really important thing like if i listen to something on one day and i don't think it's great then i could listen to it 3 days later and think actually this is all right and it's yeah. really important to allow yourself that journey with a song and if you're not sure to give it a few listens in different scenarios you know listen first thing in the morning after a run don't listen at 6 o'clock at night on your way home when you're you know i was going to say did you it- did you build a specific scenario for listening to new music? Because mm. it does it does make a difference. I always had, I'd need to get it on my phone and in headphones and go out for a walk. But because I found totally. if I listened in my living room or mm-hmm. in the studio or whatever else, it, w- it wouldn't impact me in the same way. I needed to yep. essentially imagine I'm in a film and have a soundtrack. I needed <laughs> to be walking along the streets at night, have yeah. headphones on and go, right, this feels yeah. like a good film. Therefore, it's a good song. See also on the tube. A lot of yeah. times I pretend I'm on a music video on the tube, yeah, kind of, yeah. you know, unfinished sympathy vibes, massive attack, walking through people on the road, yeah. like all that. No, I totally get you. And and for me, optimum listening times are in the car on my own mm-hmm. at night, running, yeah. walking, music in headphones. So they're good. So if, if ever I'm not sure about a record, then I'll, I will go back to it and, and just have a listen on my own in that scenario. You have to yeah. try and give it the respect of a few listens 
to, to really make sure that your your opinion is right. So yeah, it's a funny combo. It's like having conviction in your opinion, but also not being afraid to to be wrong, you know, yeah. about your opinion as well. Do, do you think you benefited from your time behind the scenes with regards to that? Because you will have seen the work of radio pluggers, the work of labels, the mm. the the ways in which things get on playlists, A-lists or B-lists or whatever else, and you will have seen all the ins and outs of that. And I mean, it must have been good to give you that experience of, as you said, kind of seeing beyond any industry hype and being tr- yeah. true to yourself on it because you will have seen how these things come about, I guess, and get presented. So, yeah, so before I got the job working behind the scenes at Radio 1, I worked as a radio plugger. So I had three right. jobs. I was yeah. working at, at the SBN, you know, doing those shows, but I was also working as a radio plugger, as an assistant to a radio plugger. And that was so brilliant for me again for that exact reason that you said seeing it from the other side seeing what a plugger has to go through seeing how arrogant and just entitled people could be when they get used to having music brought to them on a plate and then saying yes or no to it seeing how lazy people could be about just taking what they're given rather than searching and seeking like all of that stuff also seeing how my boss at the time would would have to be answerable to, you know, these artists and their management about why the record isn't being played and, and, and what a difficult position a plugger can be in, in terms of, you know, when they really believe in a record and everyone believes in a record and it's it's just down to one person's opinion, you know, and that can be so frustrating, I can imagine, and, you know, demotivating uh, for, for a plugger. So, yeah, it's I guess it's that side of music that is, you know, the unromantic side. It's the commercialization of music. It's like, how do you sell a record? How do you convince someone that a song is good? And, you know, it, again, it was it was a really wonderful education for me. She represented some brilliant people. She represented Roots Maneuver. Wow. On the what's the what's the Run Come Save Me album. Yeah. Uh, which I which I did a lot of work on and um that was an incredibly rewarding experience. I remember having yeah. a day with a day with Roots Maneuver in Brixton, going around the market and going to Mass, that church in Brixton and him doing interviews and then going back to his friends flat in Kennington and yeah, I don't know, I just remember it being just the most, like, as a fan, just being, yeah. like, walking home from work that day, being like, whoa. How cool was that? I yeah. have a really good job. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and that must have been a good one to work on, because R- Roots is someone who's unrelenting to the industry. And right. the industry can be a really w- weird one. Again, speaking from my experiences, is you start to really question everything. And we'd have, particularly, like, in my experience, our first album no one expected to get any airplay because it's it's mm. weird and then it did and then you start to doubt yourself and second guess yourself and right. we have have pluggers again we were lucky to have amazing pluggers uh, chris slade was our guy for a, yeah, a long chris. time but you'd start to go right well this version of the song it'll get on zane it'll get on hugh but it's not going to get daytime so we yeah. need to do a, a radio edit to try and get joe wiley or to get fern or whomever else and it starts to be this weird thing and you can get so caught up in it in trying to trying to give what you think a producer exactly. wants and exactly it was the biggest breakthrough moment for, for me was going i want my music to be played by people who want to play it i don't want to try and convince someone right. of playing it kind of thing and that's yeah. what it becomes it becomes oh we need the radio edit and we need the the version where the the hook comes in earlier or, yeah. or this or that. It's like, well, no, that's not 
what we do and or, always or always... you start or you start kind of um kind of trying to think about what songs they that are being played yeah and yeah. you're like oh so that stuff's getting playlist maybe we should make ours sound a bit like that and you can really hear when people do yeah. that in their music yeah. i can anyway you can hear as the as the person who's listening to the music in in my position anyway i can hear when people do that it's apparent when someone's doing what you just said when you start making music for the sake of the creative process of making yeah. music I mean, and you know, I can totally understand why people would do it. I'm writing my second book at the moment and the first book has been all right. And already I'm like thinking about it in the way of, well, well, how will I talk about this this time around? And and what will people say? And and suddenly you're seeing it through, through how this book will be seen and perceived and accepted rather than what you want to say and what's coming naturally to you. And it's, it's very hard to, to not do that, to not, to not go that way. I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a weird one, but it's all completely n- natural as well. It's all yeah. completely natural to be influenced by what people totally. are telling you and what what the the reactions are. Big reactions are addictive, particularly in the world of social media these oh, these God, days. Yeah. It's, it can yeah. become an addictive drug to chase. Well, I mean, I wanted to ask you what it was like being a Radio One DJ and people who can't see. I'm putting that in little mm-hmm. quotation marks because it's a weird and unique thing. It's huge. It's powerful, but also it's something that d- doesn't necessarily have to be associated with being a DJ DJ, if you know what I yeah. mean. It, you could be a Radio 1 DJ and just a presenter. Um, I always remember mm, true. Uh, when I was, I was doing my club night, I'd, I'd, get, I'd twist Zane's arm to come down and DJ all the time, and every time I'd have people going, why have you got Zane Lowe coming and DJing? It's some Radio 1 guy. And then he's one of the best DJs you've ever seen. He just absolutely yeah, yeah, yeah. tears it up. So how how was that as someone who came from, you know, being a proper DJ as such to then being a radio DJ? Mm. Was there any conflict? Was there any positive or negative impact on live bookings? Because, mm. again, a, a lot of people, if they only know you as that person off the radio, isn't going to know your roots in the right. raves, you know, yeah. and things like that. Yeah. So how was that? Well, it's interesting, the chronology of it, because my roots in the raves at that point, like I got my radio show when I was 26 and I was DJing, but I had no, I had no like standing at all as a club DJ at that point. I was DJing at the Underworld in Camden every Saturday night. You know, I wasn't even properly DJing and mixing up dance music at that time. It wasn't until I got the show on Radio 1, which was a credible dance show, that I then started getting bookings to, to come and DJ. So for me, it was it was kind of the opposite of what you were saying in that because the show that I was doing was a dance show and a lot of people were very curious and excited about the idea of this new dance yeah. show. Um, and once they heard what I was playing on the show, that then helped them to book me. So if it wasn't for Radio 1 for me, I don't think I would have had nearly the career that I had. And yeah. a lot of people ask me about being a woman in dance music and, and how how did I find it as a DJ trying to break into the world of kind of being a DJ, a club DJ as a woman. And I really think that it's because of Radio 1 and the show that I had at Radio 1 that gave people the confidence to book me, whereas they probably wouldn't have otherwise. So I, yeah. I, had, I, I felt like I had a leg up by having that kind of profile and that status of having a radio show. And then, you know, when you have a radio show, you automatically gain new relationships. You, you know, you're playing artists, you're getting to know artists, you're, you're starting to kind of um, play with them at various places. And then off the back of that, I started kind of booking my own nights and kind of inviting artists myself. And then you, you, you become this, 
you feel like you're in this kind of amazing community of of people which I don't know I really enjoyed feeling like part of something you know and and I think it served me really well at Radio 1 to be a DJ and to have events and to have things going on outside the parameters of of the BBC because I mean, the first rule I, I, I found there that I was given by, by someone who was a friend was like, don't put your, all, all your eggs into this basket. You just, you're always at the whim of your boss, you know, at the BBC. Yeah. So have your own shit going on. Do your own yeah. thing outside of it. And, and, and when I started doing that with AMP or Animat Presents and putting on nights at Fabric and kind of touring with them and stuff, I found that so rewarding and uh, because I could control it and I could build it myself. And all of the people I was playing at the BBC, I then had this kind of outside relationship with. And when I was still able to curate, but do it kind of outside in, in a kind of live physical way. So, yeah, I think that really served me. And I think in the end, it helped the BBC to promote me. I think the, yeah. one of the reasons why I got that Zane Lowe slot was because I had my own festival and I was yeah. playing main yeah. stages at festivals. And th- they liked the fact that I had this cultural standing outside of Radio 1. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, it was, I mean... Just speaking of 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 that scene and and that that well, there's a few things I want to talk about here, and I'm I'm aware that we're running out of time, so I want to <laughs> okay. jump in on on all the exciting things. But the clubbing world and clubbing scene obviously is is in a rough place at the moment because of everything mm. that's going on with the pandemic. It's scary to think of what form in which it will r- r- return. But prior to all that, you spoke about being a woman in in that world. How was it for you and your partner, who's also in that world, to go from being DJs, kids in the rave to parents in the rave and and trying to balance that that life for both of you? Because, again, Mm. it is a it's a dual thing. You've both got like you were both in that same world. So how Mm. was that to kind of to make that transition, I guess? So we didn't stop. We just carried on. We, you know, yeah. I had this kind of determination that I wasn't going to let a child or being a parent stop me in my career. Uh, I was really ambitious. I wanted to keep growing and, and going on. And T, my husband, he he was grand. He was happy to go along with it. You know, we, we spent the first kind of three or four years as parents just really kind of blagging it, basically. Yeah. I mean, everyone does. Everyone you know, does. No, no, say, one, yeah. no, one, no one is qualified as a parent before yeah. having a child or after, may I say. But it's like... It was just the idea of like not stopping. I, I you know, I, I carried on playing festivals. I, we, we were very lucky in that we had, we both had parents who were happy to kind of help out and come down to London and stay and look after the the kids. Or we'd go to Ibiza, and bring grandparents, and then we would be able to go out and do all our shows there. So it kind of we we, we blagged it, and it worked um, for a while, but then it started to get hard. And when I had my second kid, it really. Um, I don't know. It just got really hard. I think that coincided with 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 kind of coming up to forty, turning forty, stopping, having a real long, hard look at my life backwards at my life for the last fifteen years, and kind of feeling like I'd stopped challenging myself. I'd stopped pushing myself. I was just trying to keep everything afloat. So with yeah. my first kid, I went into it all ambitious, and then it just got harder and harder. And it was just about trying to maintain. Yeah. 
There yeah. was never any headspace, never any time to try something new, to try and have new ideas or, 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 or learn anything new. It was just, how can I just maintain my life? And then it was like, this isn't sustainable. I don't want to live like this. Um, just trying to keep everything upright all the time. I want to kind of take a lot of stuff out and reassess. And that's yeah. what I've been doing for the last kind of two years. And it's been so brilliant. I've really it's, enjoyed it's, it. It's really interesting to step back and look at what you're doing because you want to and what you're doing because you want to prove that you can. Do you oh know what I mean? God. I've had numerous times. So it's like, I'm doing true. this because I want everyone to know I can do it. It's like, but do I want to be? No, then stop. Yeah. Who gives a that's shit what other so people, it. what you're showing people? That's exactly what happened to me. Exactly yeah. that. It's like, I'm not yeah. enjoying this. Who am I doing this for? Yeah. Not my yeah. kids. Like they're, they're, everyone's unhappy. Like let's just, yeah. yeah. So it's been, it's been really nice. And I've really felt the difference with my own children. We're, we're all just kind of more content and more happy um, with me not trying to, be everything for everyone <laughs> yeah i mean well as we wrap things up there's t- t- two things i want to get in in some way at the end is you mentioned turning 40 and having a moment of reflection and i think it ties into both things here and number one i want to talk about your journey to making the decision to to leave radio yeah, one because sure. that's, that's a huge one but also your book because that's an, again another huge huge mm. thing so, so i guess let's start with a radio one how was yeah. that? That's not an easy decision to, to make, nah. particularly with the history behind the scenes, the stepping in to take over, to fill for, for Zane for mm. a while and then being given the keys to the castle as such and, and all these different things. Yeah, it's um, it's funny people's reaction to it mm. because people are like, oh, you're very brave. You know, it's, there's kind of like, there's kind of a, a, a bit of an incredulousness, like, are you sure? What are you doing kind of thing? Yeah why are you walking away from this and um it's very you know it's kind of hard to hard to articulate but it's I guess it's important to say that it's been a long time coming like it wasn't just a snap decision it was something that I'd been thinking about for a good year been speaking to my boss about for a good while in terms of like getting his head around the fact that I was going to leave at some point in the next few years. It was just a matter of when. And the reason why I wanted to leave Radio 1 is because I felt like I want to, I mean, exactly what I said, I want to leave feeling good. I've seen a lot of people leave Radio 1 in my time there in different ways. And I wanted to leave with, with goodwill from both sides. And there was options, of course, to do different shows or to do less shows, but I couldn't, I couldn't justify like leaving the weeknight show and just doing Friday again because yeah. I love yeah. playing that music and I didn't want to miss Friday and just do the weeknight. So it was kind of like I couldn't find the right like equation of shows that I could do and I quite like the idea of just leaving on a real high and the reason why I felt confident in doing that was because in the last previous two years had had spent time podcasting and writing and both of those things were becoming viable strands of of a career they were things I could actually attribute my working days to and I could see that they could be a career you know in 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 the distant future and and I was attracted to the idea of them because as you well know you're the boss you know you do it on your time on your terms and in in a time when I have young kids and I want to be able to be around for them when I want I was attracted to the idea of being able to work have work work for me if you know what I mean Um, so those were big things and it's um, it's such an interesting one because as we spoke earlier of the the pandemic removing that ability to go 
back to Ireland or whatever else, and that being mm. the key thing there, it's similar. Even if you've got the most understanding and supported boss in the world, it's still someone that you need to run things by. And, mm. and, and the ability to remove that and be your own boss and go, no, this is where we want to go, this is what we right. want to do, it's such a difference. And it's n- never an insult on the the boss or the institution that you're, yeah, you're walking away from. It's just not. it's a different yeah. thing there to go, look, no matter how supportive you were, you had the power t- to say mm. no. And now mm. no one has the power to say no. We can go, mm. this can go in the direction I want. And that's true f- freedom, s- similar to bands even subconsciously trying to make things more radio friendly. Mm. When you're working for someone else, you will be subconsciously leaning in the direction of Mm. what they want or what you think they want. Whereas when you're truly your own boss, it's exactly where you want it to go. Yeah. And it's a lovely feeling. It's a really nice feeling. And and I've had it obviously outside work with the AMP company and putting on festivals and that. Um, they were also things that were very uh, dependent on teams, big teams. I had accumulated a lot of teams at that point. Uh, and uh, I was also quite enjoying just working on my own on the book, just like being able to kind of lose myself in my own head um, yeah. and be really indulgent in that creative process. So, yeah, it was it was a kind of confluence of different things. And then the last one and, and the thing that was really at the baseline of all of my decision making around leaving Radio 1 was my youngest kid was starting school in September, yeah. uh, which means that, you know, he's he's only going to be around from whatever, half three on. Yeah. And if I have to leave leave for work every day at half four, it's just I just there's just not enough time in, in the days. So I just want to see him more. So it was very simple and easy kind of measure to go right that's that's a full stop that I know that's happening at that time and there was all this talk of me working beyond that and I was like you know what I just know that that's I want to be around then so it it just makes it very easy for me to put a full stop there I love that well to uh, to wrap things up you touched upon you know in this in these two years working on podcasts and and working on writing um I saw you talking on a breakfast show the other week and saying that your book Mother, mother, it very much isn't a write about what you know. It's not stuff that's happened, but there's there's relations, and it made me think that it feels like these. This is a story that you have allowed to sit with you for a long time. There's a depth and and richness in there that feels like it's been percolating mm. for years and years, and and it's been building and and layering, and then it's mm. come out. So how's that been, and what's the yeah the process been? It's been the most thrilling and exhilarating process, and. There's many reasons for that. I mean, just the, the very essence of how I wrote it was that there was no grand plan. There was no strategy. Didn't know how the story was going to end. I know how I wanted it to feel, but not how, how it was actually going to play out. So every day I was writing and I was discovering the story as I was writing. And that yeah. was mad. I was going back the next day and being like, oh, shit, that happened. Oh, my God, you did that. Like, it was kind of like just discovering these characters and just that whole idea, it sounds so cliche and it sounds so cheesy, but just the idea of a story coming out or just arriving. Yeah. I mean, I've interviewed so many artists who say that about the, the songs. They're like, it just arrived. The best songs just arrive. They just yeah. come to you. And and I was kind of experiencing a little bit of that process of just having something come out and and then coming back to it and, and kind of seeing it and editing it and then carrying on. It's, it's, it's perfect for, for being your own cr- critic, right because you're experiencing it for the first time and you know if it's it's good or bad I've I've got a script I'm working on at the moment and last week 
was in a big chunk of it that I really, I don't know what's going to happen. And it was that right. amazing week of this happened, this happened. And then I started this week and it's been the complete opposite. I've been like, oh, that happened. That's not great. I'm making sure I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to sit down and write every day to make sure I'm doing stuff. But it is going to be one where I'm going back and editing because you know the yeah. bits that you're going, oh my, and other bits, you know the bits where you're going, all right. I that's guess not that exciting. That's, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. That's where that goes. Yeah. But no, I mean, I just loved it. And, and I think um, it's been, it, since it's come out, it's been really interesting because that whole idea that you say of, of something being good or bad, as in the finished product, I've really grappled with because I'm so used to, I'm so, I'm so conditioned to the idea of saying yes or no to songs Yeah, that like, uh, you know, and, and kind of, obviously everything is fucking subjective. It's art. It's interpreted how you like it. The, the best thing about a song is that it's, it's, it's like a virus. It goes into someone. It takes a totally different form in different people. It's like, you know, you feel it in your way. But I, I kind of kept thinking about mother, mother as like, is it good or is it bad? you know is it good enough is it good enough and then I've realized that it's not it's just not really about that at all because everyone is going to have their own versions of how they feel about it and you know it's it's so many other authors I speak to just say you know once it's handed over it's gone it's just not yours anymore just just let it go so kind of in the process of doing that the the way I used to do things with my record label and with the artists on it is I'd push that we we celebrate when the masters and the artwork are submitted because yeah. that's when the job's completed. Not when it comes out, not when we find out chart position or yeah, exactly. A list or B list or any airplay. We celebrate and we go, we fucking did it. We yeah. l- l- look at this artwork, look at this yeah. record. Everything after that, it's out yeah. of our control. It's a bonus. Yeah. The, yeah. the celebration comes when that, when we've completed what we set out to do. And I think that's brilliant. I love really that. important in, yeah. in this world. Well, I mean, I'll leave it there and let you get get back t- t- to your life. But it's it's been a pleasure. It's been so lovely Absolute to sit down pleasure. and have a chat. And I want to obviously let people know that Changes with Annie Mac is your podcast. We hardly g- got into that, but it's a great place yeah. to keep up with you and to keep up with the guests that you've had on and all, all that kind of thing. So, yeah, is there anything else that you'd like to to plug or say or mention? No, not really. The podcast is 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 out. It's coming in autumn, and yeah, it's just been an absolute treat to talk to you. So thank you so much. I love it. Thank you very much, and we'll talk again soon. I'm sure. Yeah, I hope so. Thank you. You've been listening to Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was Annie McManus. I loved that conversation. I hope you did too. As mentioned, previous radio guests, there's been so many. Hugh Stevens, Fern Cotton, I'm forgetting all of them now, Zane Lowe, John Kennedy, uh, Huey Morgan, and loads and loads more. And guests like Roots Maneuver, Mike Skinner, Kay Tempest, Getz, Kano, Dizzy, everyone, Wretch. I've had a lot of good guests on, so go back in the back catalogue and get them in your ears. Um, I'll be back next week with more wonderful chatter. So until then, stay safe and stay sane. Ta-ta. <laughs>